We'll be talking about the impact of gun violence in this podcast. If this is a difficult topic for you, please take care when listening. April 20th, 1999, Littleton, Colorado. 911, what's your emergency? The shooting begins at 11.19 a.m. Okay, did you see what happened? No, I did not. People are saying there was a gun. Attention, Southgate, it's a possible shot fired at Columbine High School, 6201 South Pierce, possibly in the south lower lot towards the east end. One female is down. Within minutes of the gunfire, a cafeteria worker dials 911. Jefferson County 911. I have a student on the phone at Columbine High School. Cannot call 911. There are shots fired. Yes, we have units out. We have units out there now. I've got this student on the phone. He's hiding in the back room right now. He knows where the shooter is if you don't. Okay. Yes. By then, students Rachel Scott and Danny Rohrbaugh have been shot dead. Students Richard Castaldo, Lance Kirkland, and Sean Graves are seriously injured. Okay, also have reported possible grenades in the school. Copy. It would be 14 minutes after the shooting began before authorities dispatched SWAT teams to the Columbine campus. At 11.26, teacher and coach Dave Sanders is shot in the second floor hallway. We do have an injured party shot in the head. Haley and Yukon, Haley and Yukon. Jefferson County 911. Yes, I am a teacher at Columbine High School. The school is in a panic, and I'm in the library. We need police here. Okay, we're getting in there. Oh, God. Stay in the line with me. Oh, God. Do we know where he's at? He's right outside of here. The shooters enter the library at 1129. I have a table, kids. Oh, my God, that was really close. We've been there, King Gunn. Yes. They murder nine students while leaving 10 injured. At 11.39, seven deputy sheriffs were on the scene, none of whom entered the building. 27, I'm set up on Pierce at the uh, south side lot. At 11.45, law enforcement decided to wait until SWAT arrived before entering the school. By 11.46, the shooters returned to the cafeteria to make one final attempt to detonate their homemade bombs by shooting at them. Taking his time, one shooter calmly takes a sip of water. Around noon, a desperate student puts a sign in a window that read, quote, one leading to death. That one is Coach Dave Sanders. Outside, 75 police officers have surrounded the high school. The SWAT team finally enters the building at 12.06. They enter from a door that is the furthest from the library and the science room where Dave Sanders lay dying. At 12.08, the killers take their own lives. At 1.10, after almost two hours, members of the SWAT team finally enter the part of the building where Dave Sanders was. He was struggling to stay alive And after maneuvering through flooded rooms and smoke, the SWAT team finally got to him at 2.47. One officer left to find an EMT, but by the time the EMT arrived 42 minutes later, Dave had taken his final breath.
My name is Amy Over, and this is Confronting Columbine. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Confronting Columbine is back with Columbine survivor and host Amy Over. I'm Nancy Glass. Amy, I think the interview this week is one of the most important to you. It is the most important to me Um, to be able to talk to lead investigator Kate Batten was something that I wanted to do for years. I kept hoping it would happen and she was at the center of everything. And I finally could ask somebody directly about if I was on the hit list or not. I wasn't prepared for what she told me. And also I didn't realize what she had gone through professionally and, and personally. And I don't think that anyone ever really thinks about law enforcement that way. It was surreal. I couldn't believe that this was happening in South Jefferson County. What was your role at that time? Well, at that time, we were all just trying to gather information. And our job is more as investigators. We're not the first responders. Yeah. Our job was all the information coming out so that we could get intel for the people going into the school. Okay. Time went really fast and really slow at the same time. And I don't remember exactly when it was, but within an hour of me being on scene, people started coming up to me like somehow I had answers that I didn't have. And I finally saw my Sergeant Randy West and he walked up to me and I said, is there something you need to tell me? And he said, this is yours. So right then and there, he gave you the investigation. He said, this is your investigation. I was the newest person in the homicide unit. I was three guys and myself. And two of those guys were getting ready for going to trial on a terrible homicide where there was seven defendants. It was a gang killing. And I don't know if that was part of the reason that that, uh, they weren't even in the running. He never really told me why he chose me, being the the newest on the team, but he did, and it forever changed my life. That first day was controlled chaos. It truly was just making sure that we didn't have any more safety issues inside the school. There was bombs everywhere. I mean, that night, probably around 10.30 at night, My sergeant and I wanted to get in that school and we thought it must be safe by now. So we just walked in the front door and it was the most eerie thing. There was no one there. There was shoes that kids had run out of. There was backpacks. There was damage from some of the pipe bombs and from shooting. 
and it's quiet, and you just don't expect that in a school ever. We're walking down the main hall from the front door, and we see a bomb squad guy at the far end on the west entrance. They notice that we're there, and they're screaming at us, telling us the scene isn't safe, there's bombs everywhere. So we had to go back the way we went, feeling like idiots, and then we decided to walk around the back through the parking lots to find out when can we come in. So we're walking through the parking lot and we're standing there thinking that we're a safe distance saying, hey, when can we go in? And the bomb guys start yelling at us again and they're like, you're standing next to a bomb. And we were standing next to Harris's car. Oh, crap. And it was right around 10.38 p.m., I think, that uh, the bomb squad was lowering some of the pipe bombs that they had found into the bomb truck and one of them exploded. And that's when the powers that be said, we are not getting in the school tonight. It's not safe. Everybody has to go home. So you went home that night? Didn't want to, but we did. Did you just feel the weight of the world on you or did that come years later? Um, I think that it was gradual. I was too busy to watch all the coverage and watch all the news and, and all the craziness. But my job, especially in the very beginning, was just that scene and the following morning, we all showed up at the school and five of us walked into the school so that we could just assess the situation. When we walked in, the library was the first place that we went because we knew that that was where the worst of it was. And the very first table that I came up to, I saw a young girl with long brown hair wearing jeans and boots and a blouse, a, a short sleeve blouse. And I couldn't see her face, and I took a picture of her. This is before digital cameras, so I had a Polaroid. And on the Polaroid, I wrote in Sharpie number one. And to this day, to this day when I named the victims, I named them in the order that I met them. Mm -hmm. Sorry. No, it's okay. It makes me crazy when the media does everything alphabetically. It just seems so impersonal and unfair. And so to me, um, Lauren Townsend will always be number one. Mm -hmm. Dave Sanders will always be number 13 because I didn't want to give a kid the number 13. Why is that? A lot of people think 13 is an unlucky number. Yeah. So I figured that Dave could handle it. Our first day was basically taking pictures so that we could identify all of the victims. There was actually two boys that had cut school that day and went to Denver, and they didn't even know about the shooting. So we actually had two extra missing. Oh, I didn't know that. A lot of people don't. I think that their parents didn't know whether to beat them or hug them when they finally came home. <laughs> oh my gosh. The, the bodies were left overnight? That was super hard, yes. As crime scene processors, once you change that scene, it's changed forever. And the less that you change it, the better we are at being able to figure out how it happened, um, the angles of shots. Once you move them, you lose that forever. And we were able to get them all out on the 21st, but it was a very slow process because they took pictures and measurements. But we could later literally 
put a person exactly where they were, and we did, as a matter of fact, wearing Tyvek suits as part of our reconstruction. And we could only do that because they were there. You know, after the shooting in Boulder, Boulder was able to get out everybody, I think by three o'clock in the morning. And that's just one of the many lessons that we've learned. Don't leave them there. We didn't want to leave them there. They would not let us in the building because of all the bombs. It's overwhelming when the whole world is watching you. And I, I didn't see that in the very beginning, but as time went on, it's overwhelming. There's all this criticism about first responders, about the investigation, about the administration, about the school. I just wanted to do the best job that I could. And my sergeant, who is amazing, he would tell me, just focus on your job. You know how to do your job. Everything else is noise. Focus on the job. And that's not always easy. Everybody wanted to talk about Columbine. So to see friends, to see family, everybody wanted the inside scoop or how do you feel? And I didn't want to talk about my feelings. I felt like I was going to fall apart if I did. I just wanted to work. And there was so many disappointments in terms of our relationship with the families when things started going sour. One of the favorite parts of my job is to get to know these people that I'm working for. I'm working for somebody who can't speak anymore, you know, and, and being able to answer the questions and prosecute the offender and send them to prison. Um, when all the criticism started coming, we became the enemy, and that was heartbreaking to me. So a lot of the anger was misdirected towards you? Towards me or my office, and I represent my office, towards law enforcement in general, but not all the families. Some of the families were and continue to be so amazing and supportive, and I still have relationships with them. But some of the families will always, on some level, blame the sheriff's office or the school for the death of their loved one. And I don't judge that. I don't judge how somebody grieves and how somebody processes the loss of, of a family member. I can't imagine. I've got pretty broad shoulders, and I've had a lot of cases where I've been yelled at by victim's family telling me, you know, you're lying to me when you tell me that my loved one is dead. Wow. But I didn't want to go out and see anybody or do anything. I went to the mall one time and I saw one of the family members that didn't like us was giving me evil eyes and I stopped my shopping and went home. Wow. That's heartbreaking that you went through that. Well, law enforcement is a funny thing because we're expected to be like robots and do our job, but then we're supposed to be human and we're both. We're both. Could you go up to your peers and lean on them for support? Uh, you know, it, it has changed a lot. I've always been kind of touchy-feely, but I also work in a men's world. I was the only female homicide investigator and I worked with some great guys, but everybody hides their feelings. They don't want you to know that anything bothered them. Columbine was no different. There was a lot of trauma in our community, as you well know. Mm -hmm. But even if you didn't go to Columbine, you didn't have kids at Columbine, you didn't have anybody in the medical or um, law enforcement field, you still were affected if you lived in Colorado, especially if you lived in Littleton. 
Law enforcement has always been a little bit lacking in that area, but I, I will hand it to our agency. There was a lot of things out there that were available to help us deal with our first responders, our dispatchers, our victim advocates. So you had counseling and other resources available to you? Yes, but it was not mandatory. So there was a lot of people that went, no, I'm good, I, I don't need to go to that. I don't need to, to have any counseling or tell anybody about my feelings. So we just shoved it down and went about our job. I can never say that I went through what you went through. I didn't go through what other people went through, but it's this shared experience. And I feel more comfortable talking to somebody who is there or somebody that was truly involved in it. I would have friends and my mom, family, that would say, this is my daughter. She was the lead investigator of Columbine. This is my friend. She's the lead investigator of Columbine. And I, I tell my friends, don't do that because then everybody wants to talk to me about it. So that is information I do not give up. Yeah. Well, after the shooting, I remember going to Seattle and visiting my family to get out of Littleton for a while. And um, all my old friends that I grew up with, they were like, Amy's from Columbine. Amy was at Columbine. And I just, I just wanted to be Amy. I have a really hard question to ask you and like something that I've struggled with for the past 21 years. I was told I was on a hit list. Was there a hit list? Harris and Klebold both had several hit lists. There was more than one. And we were able to identify almost everybody that was on their hit list and we reached out to them to ask them, do you know why you would be on this hit list? Because I was told I was on a, a hit list and um, I've never seen this list. And it's been almost 22 years and it's kind of foggy for me now, you know, um, as to, I, I remember it being, it being such an exhausting time, but I remember the FBI coming to my house and telling me I was on a list, but that's pretty much the only information I got. What was your last name then? Evans. Evans. You are not on Klebold's. And I'm even looking for just an Amy, because sometimes they just had first names, because I've got their list right here. Yeah, my name was Amy Evans. No, you're, you are not on Klebold's. Oh my gosh. My heart is like pounding right now. Um, this is something that I've just been struggling with for a long time. I can tell you that during the, their videos. Yeah. You know, everybody calls them the basement videos, even though Harris did not have a basement. Yeah. Eric had written out two shit lists. One of them has a lot of people on it. I'm trying to find that list. Ugh. Yeah, you're on that list. I'm on that list. One of Eric Harris's shit lists. Amy Evans. Fuck. I'm looking at the list. That is, um, wow. That is, uh, that's just surreal. He had another list that was shorter. And that one's just this short one right here. Yeah. And, it, and it's titled Girls List. And it just said Amy, but based on the other list, we assumed that it was Amy Evans. Wow. 
Why would someone want me dead? Another thing that they both did, especially Harris, he went through the 1998 yearbook and would just yeah. cross out names or put, you know, names on somebody's picture like, you know, Goblin or Pretty Boy or Fag or Scoop or, or whatever. You yeah. don't appear to be in that one. Um, but they they hated everybody, Amy. That They hated yeah. everybody. It was easier to say who he didn't cross out in his yearbook than who he did or who he didn't. There was so many. Yeah. So I was on two lists. Correct. That is like just sickening and I never got like validation of that. So thank you for clearing, clearing that up because I have reoccurring dreams of Harris, like nightmares. Eric Harris was an injustice collector. He collected real but mostly perceived injustices. So if he liked somebody and that person couldn't read his mind and smile at him and be nice to him, then he hated him. So many people on this list, they're like, I never talked to the guy. I have no idea why I would be on the list. So it's that perceived injustice in his mind, that girl didn't smile at me. That girl didn't talk to me. And yeah. so now you're gonna be on a shit list. So he called it a shit list. He called this particular one his shit list and the other one the girl's list, but he also had a hit list. So they're all the same to me in terms of lists of people that he didn't like. Ironically, all of these names on all of these lists from Harrison Klebold, there was only one that was injured, not killed, but injured in the library. Because when they started shooting, they may have thought they were gonna look for certain people. And we know that when they walked into the library and said, everybody with a white hat stand up because that was the jocks. But yeah. they just indiscriminately shot. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. 
Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. What would you wish that you could say to every misguided soul that somehow idolized the two perpetrators who murdered the 13 at Columbine? Not to borrow a, um, a very popular campaign, but it gets better. Mm-hmm. Youth is hard. Being a kid, being a teenager is hard, and it does get better. Harris and Klebold were unique because most shooters are lone shooters. They act alone. And anybody who has feelings that they want to go out and shoot up their school, I would like to think that they temper themselves and they come to their senses and they get over it and they bury those urges down. Harris and Klebold ratched each other up. And I don't know if separately either one of them would have gone through with what they did, but together, they just kept feeding each other's flames to where it got to the point of no return and no one's going to back down. And I'm sure that was obvious in the basement tapes. Did you watch those tapes with the shooter's parents? When we shared the uh, videos with the family members, uh, they had the option of coming to our office and watching it, or we could go to their homes and watch it. Um, And the family members were all different. Some family members didn't want to see it at all. The Harrises and the Klebolds were very different. With the Klebolds, they wanted to come into our office, which surprised me because we still had a lot of media that was stalking us. They wanted to come into our office and watch the video, and they came with two or three attorneys. But we sat in a large training room and watched the video, and I told them from the get-go, if you need breaks, Um, If you need a moment, let me know. And they sat there stoically. Sue showed a little bit of emotion, but um, Tom did not. And they watched that video from beginning to end, almost three hours worth, with very little reaction. And at the end of it, Tom turned to me and he said, see, he didn't want to do this. And I thought to myself, what? video did you just watch? The Harrises were very different. They asked us to come to their home. When we got to their home, they had their personal attorney and a therapist. And I told them the same thing. If you need breaks, let me know. We took so many breaks, I was there all evening long because they were holding on to each other and crying and they'd say, Kate, can we just take a break? And they would go into a bedroom with their therapist and come out in 15 minutes and say, okay, let's go again. And they kept saying, oh my God, we're so sorry. It was just a stark difference between the two families. Yeah, I'm shocked. I think as time went on, Sue leaned in. But in the beginning... She was very, very closed off, and Tom Klebold was very stoic. And I did not find that with the Harrises. They've always been apologetic and very open to answer questions. Now, I will put a caveat on that. Their attorneys, they said you cannot talk to the detectives. So we didn't talk about 
them. We met with the Klebolds one time at their attorney's office and looked at photo albums, but we didn't get to talk about the events of April 20th and leading up to April 20th. So we never got that from either family. But after the fact, we found ourselves on the same side of the courtroom with the Harrises and the Klebolds against the whole world that wanted those videotapes to be released. So we're sitting on the side of the table with the Harrises and the Klebolds, which was an uncomfortable place to be. But through that process, we got to know them. In the community, at least, it seems that they have never made a public statement. They've never come forth with any sort of apology. Sue Klebold, I've read her book. She sent me a lovely email a couple months back, which I haven't responded to yet because I don't know what to say yet. But she validated my feelings and it was very um, heartfelt. But I've never heard anything from the Harrises. The Harrises are very, very private. Um, I'm not surprised at that because what do you say? What words are going to make anything better? Their son did a terrible, terrible thing. I like Sue Klebold a lot, and I think that she's really evolved over the years and feels for all the victims, and I'm sure that the Harrises do too. They just don't express that. They pretty quickly moved out of the county. Harris talks about on one of the videotapes how hard it is to interact with his friends and interact with his family knowing he doesn't care anything about them and he's going to be dead soon. And so it's all a big joke, but he has to keep up the appearances. Did working on the investigation take a toll on you? It was 24-7. I isolated myself. I drank too much. I didn't sleep well. I was just antisocial. I actually had some friends that would call my sergeant and say, tell Kate she's coming to dinner on Saturday night. And he would make me go. <laughs> <laughs> it ended a relationship for me. It ended relationships for years, actually. I was single until 2000 and, uh, don't get this wrong, <laughs> until 2010. So I was single until 2010. And then I took a chance and, and met somebody and we got married. Tomorrow's our five year anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary. I worked on the case full time. And just when I thought I could start stepping away and doing other cases, all the lawsuits started. And so I literally did not come to work at the sheriff's office. I would get in my car every day and I would drive to the law firm that was representing us in the Dave Sanders case. And then we would get requests constantly saying, please come and tell us what your lessons are. I traveled all over the country in Canada and those were bittersweet because sometimes it was nice to get away, but other times it's like, oh, I gotta talk about it again. Yeah. It was just about a year and a half after Columbine that I finally took vacation. After 22 years, is there anything you still grapple with? You know, when all the lawsuits, especially the Dave Sanders lawsuit, when that was happening, we felt a little bit powerless, the agency itself, the people, the first responders, because ultimately it was up to the insurance carrier on whether or not they were going to make a settlement or go to trial. And I will tell you that the majority of the first responders and the SWAT officers 
They wanted to go to trial, not so that they could win, but so that they could tell their story. I know a lot of them because they told the investigators. There are so many stories from law enforcement, especially about Dave Sanders, that have never been told, and they wanted to tell that story. So it's bittersweet that those stories never got told. Um, I guess I just wanted to mention that. And that's the purpose of this show, to hear from those voices. There's been 59 school shootings since 2018. The silver lining in this pandemic is that I haven't had to worry about a mass shooting because I've got four kids in their home and I don't have to worry about them going to school. But now that schools are reopening and the kids are going back, like, what do you think's gonna happen? We're still gonna have school shootings. We never got to answer the why question. You've seen the people that said it was the medication that Harris was on, it was the video games, it was the music. And I'm not saying that none of those things contribute to somebody who is already disturbed, but one of the things, in my personal opinion, that we don't teach well enough, especially to young boys, is how to cope, how to manage conflict, how to resolve issues. We don't teach that in school. We don't teach that as a society. They're supposed to be big and strong and not cry and not show feelings. And then life is hard. And we live, unfortunately, in a society that when something goes wrong, they want to point away instead of inward. That maybe I need to spend more time with my kid instead of having two jobs so that I can afford a bigger boat. But these people who shoot and kill clearly don't have coping skills, clearly don't have conflict management, clearly don't have ways to deal with all the angst that they're feeling. And I don't know what the answer is to that, but it is a rare thing to find a young woman shooting up anything. It's a boy problem. And I don't know what we as a society need to do, but it's got to change. After I finally dealt with my demons and went to counseling, I really try and separate my work from my life. I don't have a whole lot of cop friends. I'm friendly with them, I work with them, but that's, that's my work life. My personal life is very different. I don't carry a gun. A lot of cops carry their gun all the time. They carry it camping, they carry it to the grocery store. I don't do that, I've never done that. And I'm rethinking it. I'm rethinking it. Can I tell you about an email that I got this morning? Yes. Actually, let me get this right. Yesterday morning, the Boulder County Sheriff's Office, State Patrol, and FBI all responded to the Boulder Community Hospital in order to formally arrest the shooter from the King Supers and they used Officer Talley's handcuffs. They did? Oh, that's gonna make me cry. So that's just their first step in healing. Wow. Colorado has been through a lot of mass traumas and we are, uh, we're strong. We are strong, we're gonna get through this. My heart just goes out to the Boulder community right now. It's just been such an honor to talk to you, Kate. Thank you so much. You're welcome. 
I wish you well, and thank you for your service. You're welcome. Boy, you know, I think we all discount the effect that something like this has on the police and the first responders. Were you surprised by how this has affected her? So surprised. I never thought about the police force. I never thought about what they were going through. And now looking at, you know, talking with Kate, that this is something that has affected her life for 21 years. I mean, she managed like 80-something officers with the investigation. She had special teams. She had a library team and a team for the cafeteria. And she managed this and, and was told right then and there when the shooting was happening, this is your case. It's also interesting to me that she feels more comfortable talking to somebody who's been through it. It's harder for her to talk about it as a professional and easier as somebody who's almost, um, I guess, another victim. We connected immediately, I mean, just with our shared experience of Columbine. I was so nervous to interview her and to talk with her. Why? Well, I kind of geeked out a little bit because I have a criminal justice degree and I love law enforcement. I respect her tremendously and I was nervous to interview her. Uh, She's kind of like an icon and just the details. And she was so candid and open with me about You know, I mean, I literally saw the list, Nancy. From the very beginning, you said to us, I know there was a list. I don't know if I was on it. I heard you hear it for the very first time. You got all choked up. Even listening to the episode, I had chills hearing again that I was on the list, that this was something that I've been wanting to know just to put to bed and just to heal and to move forward. And there was a sense of peace to know that it was answered for me. So how does that give you peace? You know, Klebold and Harris have never been a part of my journey. Like, I've never wanted to forgive them, ever. But just to know that I was on the list and to know that I didn't do anything to cause this. They wanted all of us dead. All these years later, it's hard to hear, you know, that someone wanted you dead. This was a deep, deep, deep deep-seated psychosis. Definitely. And they acted together. Yeah. Usually with mass shootings, it's, it's it's a lone wolf situation. Right. But this was two teenagers doing this together, feeding off each other, the, the anger and the, just the sickness that like, they fed off each other. Did she tell you why she thought the parents reacted that way? Because it could have been that they were in such shock. They had to have been in shock. I was shocked to hear, I have always thought the opposite with the Klebold and the Harrises. So I was really shocked to hear that the Harrises They had a therapist there that they, I've never heard of them having any sort of emotional feelings towards anything. So it was interesting to hear from Kate that the Harrises were really emotional with this as opposed to the Klebold family. Does that change your view of them at all? It does not change my view at all. 
just as a parent now, I know what my kids are doing. And Eric Harris was building bombs in his house. He had paraphernalia in his room. How did they not know what their son was doing? I understand. I mean, I have teenagers. They, they're sneaky. But I feel like I would know if my kids, and maybe that's presumptuous for me to say, but I feel like I, I know enough about my kids' lives that I would know if they're building bombs or, you know, I check my kids' rooms. It doesn't really change the fact, like, they've never publicly said anything. Yeah. And I think that the Columbine community maybe needs to hear that from them. Amy, I know how anxious you were to talk to our next guest, A.J. D'Andrea. He was one of the first responders on the day of the shootings. Every day is a great day when you're not worrying about your appliances and home systems. And that's what you get with an American Home Shield warranty. With American Home Shield, you can protect your home and wallet from unexpected breakdowns like leaky faucets or faulty water heaters or wonky thermostats. Now that's something to celebrate. When it comes to protecting your appliances and home systems, don't worry, be warranty. For 20% off plans, go to ahs.com slash For more details, see ahs.com slash contracts for coverage details, including limit amounts, fees, limitations, and exclusions. I'm a deputy chief with the Arvada, Colorado Police Department. Been here since 1993. When you got the call that day, had you ever had like an active shooter situation? No. In the three years prior to Columbine, from 96 to 99, we'd had some high-profile calls, but nothing compared to what Columbine was. You're always prepared, but to say that you're prepared for that, I don't think you're ever prepared. That day, the way it was dispatched, I thought I was going to a armed, barricaded gunman. Prior to Columbine, patrol would get there, and you did the four Cs. They would contain control, they'd try to contact the suspect, and then they would call SWAT. And they pretty much would wait then until SWAT got there. Yeah. You know, a lot of this podcast is about making peace with my past. And the closest adult to me at Columbine was my basketball coach, Dave Sanders. And I just have always wanted to ask you this question. How come you went to the choir room first and not into Dave Sanders, into the science room? If anybody walks away from this podcast or this interview with me, I hope they walk away with the uh, understanding of the pressure that law enforcement has put on every day. And I'm not going to make any excuses for it. And I don't need any affirmation for the decisions that I made. Mm -hmm. But I had the information that there were 60 individuals in the closet, in the choir room. I didn't have the information of the one bleeding to death. And so... If you track the progression through the school, I got to the choir room first and we get in contact with the 60. And it was about that time when we were hearing from the snipers that there's a sign in the window of one bleeding to death. Now, I didn't know, was that real? Was it a ruse by one of the gunmen to lure us into an ambush? And I didn't know exactly where it was. I knew it was on the level of the school that I was and I knew I had to be close, but we didn't have the technology that we have today. 
today's day and age, I get a computer readout on my phone and it's three dimensional and I can you know, move it around. But we literally ripped the evacuation map off the wall. Wow. But that's what I had. And so I'm looking and I had five individuals counting myself. I could have broke them off. But again, if it's an ambush, one or two officers having to fight through that, you know, it's one of the most difficult things we can deal with. The other information that was in my head and which I believed to my core is we were told there were six gunmen inside the building, barricading in different locations, holding hostages. And of course, we knew that there was a bunch of explosive devices. We known that explosive devices had gone off and we saw a large explosive device on a timer in the cafeteria when we made our entry. Now you got to make a decision. And, you know, we're damned if we do and damned if we don't. So I made a choice. I had 60 kids that were still alive and I wasn't going to leave them. I was going to get them out. And once that was taken care of, then I was going to push forward and, and see what else we could find. During that time, another part of the team eventually got to where Dave Sanders was. And so they dealt with him the best that they could. And I know it was traumatic for them. You know, you ask yourself, did I do the right thing? I don't know. I'll be judged somewhere down the road by it. Uh, you ask the parents of the 60, pretty much they say, thank you, AJ, you did the right thing. Yeah. You ask the Sanders family, and probably some people in the community as well, say, AJ, you did the wrong thing. What I have decided to do is to try to train officers and train commanders so when that happens, they have the ability to make the decision and then be able to live with themselves afterwards, right? Yeah. Be able to get up and look yourself in the mirror every day and say, okay, based off the information and the facts that, that I had, I felt like I made the best decision possible. Knowing that you're never gonna make everybody happy. No. I'm pretty emotional right now. I just have tremendous respect for law enforcement. I mean, it's not easy, like you said, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. I think if I were to put myself in those shoes, I probably would have saved the 60 children as well. You know, you're walking into this situation, you think there's six gunmen. I mean, I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't want to downplay the decision. You know, and I think, you know, I was sued over that decision and it was a long lawsuit and, and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you remember finding the kids in the choir room? We're searching for six gunmen. We think they're barricaded. That's a bad deal, right? So we have to breach the door and address what's in there. And every corner you come around, every door that you breach, every hallway you go down, you think you're gonna be in a gunfight. And so you're on high alert. So we had had to bust in a lot of doors because nobody was opening doors for us and I don't blame them. So here we are on this door and we try to, to get it open and it probably because it was barricaded, but it wasn't moving, right? And so we push and you could hear the scrambling and feel the pressure back on the door, not knowing is there a gunman inside the room with them holding them hostage. And so I remember we finally get the door opened and we told them to show us their hands and nobody did anything. We asked them to step out and nobody did anything, um, which is very common, right? Because you're scared. Here's a bunch of, you know, big, scary looking dudes. Mm -hmm. I remember we, we got one to come out and then they all came out, right? And they all came out pretty quick, probably faster than we wanted them to. <laughs> we told them to get on the ground because we're trying to control, right? And there was no way we were gonna be able to pat them all down or see if there was a gunman. So we grabbed four, random. 
we put them in the corners of the choir room and then went to them individually. Is there someone here inside the, the room with you that was holding you against your will that has a gun? And we got no, 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 no from the four individuals, right? And once we heard that, I think we, we breathed a sigh of relief a little bit. I serve on the board of the Rebels Project with one of the founders, Heather Martin. Heather was one of the kids in the choir office that day, and she has a very different memory of that rescue. So AJ says that they had to bust in the door because we wouldn't open it, like that we were too scared to open the door. How I remember it, it was hot as hell in there. So we moved the desks away from the door that we put in front of them. We come flying out the door. It's like a clown car of children, like piling out of this room. And, you know, the SWAT team is sitting there with guns raised, like they're ready to take people out because they think there's still active gunmen in the building at this point. They hadn't eliminated it all. So we come like flying out. They're like, get the bleep down. And so we all hit the deck. We laugh now because AJ is like, you guys didn't open the door. I was like, oh, we did. We were so ready to get the hell out of there. Just like a sweaty mess of kids, right? So they divided us up um, in the classroom into groups of 10 because there were like 60 of us, right? So we had to latch onto each other's belt loops as we're being led out of the school by different members of this SWAT team. And I'm between our friend Zach, (laughs) Zach Cartaya and Adam Foss. Like these are my two, these are my boys. So I am attached to them, (laughs) literally by their belt loops. They told us to keep our hands on the belt loops because they're still looking for a gunman. We go down the stairs through the commons. We reach the bottom of the commons and there's like, I don't know how many inches of water. The sprinkler system had been going off because of the pipe bombs. There's backpacks everywhere. It's like this empty, I don't know. It's this crazy memory that I have of like plates floating across the water. We got to the door and they were like, don't, don't look at the bags. And I was like, what are you even talking about? What's a bag? I didn't get it, whatever. And it was the bodies outside of the school. And so I have since asked AJ, I was like, were those covered up? Like when we got out of the school, were those covered up? And he said, no, they weren't. AJ, how do you feel law enforcement has changed since Columbine? Columbine wasn't the first school shooting, but it was the one that changed everything. It was the watershed moment, if you will, for law enforcement. Yep. That's where we sat down and was like, listen, there's got to be a better way to do this because these aren't going to stop. What we learned at Columbine is we can't wait. Today, every officer knows that if there's an active shooting, if there's loss of life, imminent threat of serious bodily injury or death, they are going to go to work. They're going to go inside and they're either going to interdict or interrupt what's taking place inside that building. Within 10 minutes of the first 911 call, I'll be in the building with other officers. If there's viable victims, firefighters are being escorted in by cops to get to those viable victims faster, to get them out, to get them into the ambulance, get them to an emergency room, trying to give them the best chance to survive. No loss of life is acceptable. Yeah. Columbine, there were so many losses of life and one could have become bitter or withdrawn. And I'm not gonna say that I didn't have those feelings, but chose to push forward and say, how do we do it better? So that when it happens again, we can walk out of that situation with no loss of life. Columbine was the one that drove that home. Mm-hmm. I think law enforcement is better prepared now because of the training, because of what we learned and what we pushed out. I want to think logically the way you can, but we can't ignore the threat. So how do we approach this realistically? Run, hide, fight. That's what the federal government talks about, right? Mm -hmm. 
Run, Hide, Fight is a federally mandated strategy that is promoted by law enforcement to help citizens react to an active shooter situation. The idea is to help prepare and empower people to survive an attack. The FBI even released a video showing a bar scene where this happens. Man, you need to back up. You can't be here You can survive a mass shooting if you're prepared. Remember, run, hide, or fight. I don't like the words run, hide, fight. I think they're the wrong words under stress. We know that there's physiological changes that happen to an individual under stress. That's where evacuate, evade, defend comes in. Evacuate keeps the brain engaged. It's an evacuation. I've got to keep my brain engaged and have a plan on how I want to uh, get out of the building or away from the harm, the shooter. If all I'm thinking is run, I might run right into where the suspect is. Hide, hide is a stagnant word. We've all played hide and go seek and we hide until we're found. Well, in an active shooter, we don't ever want to be found and we don't want to be stagnant. Mm. We teach the citizens how to evade, how to barricade if need be, but how to stay out of sight and get away from where the harm is. And then defend. We change the words to defend because defend, everyone knows what it means to defend. I, I may defend someone or myself a little differently than you, mm-hmm. but you know what it means to defend. Yeah. We're empowering the individual to make decisions for themselves to be able to survive. Mm-hmm. The power of the lockdown drills is an interesting thing. I've been in three school shootings. The three that I've been in, not one person ever did what I asked them to do. The phrase being scared out of your mind, being scared out of your wits is is a real thing. But now that we've done lockdown drills and we've done them now for for quite some time, Mm -hmm. the stories that I'm hearing and the feedback that I'm getting from officers that are in the field are that individuals are doing what the law enforcement asks them to do. They're much more engaged, people training and understanding that they have options that just don't have to be a victim. Yeah. And so people are much more engaged. I feel safer now, like talking to you, sending my daughter to school. Good. So AJ, you teach this at work, but then this actually happens to your daughter where she found herself in an active shooter situation when she was out. Do I have that right? I was lying in bed and she started to text my phone. And her first text to me was, I love you guys. And that was a code for us, that if there was trouble, get that out. It was the most helpless, hopeless I've ever felt. You know, I got to my senses as I'm laying there and she's texted me that she was at the bar and there was shooting. And because we talked about it, because we, she'd been empowered, she knew she had to do something. And she was able to get up into the attic with a bunch of other people and they barricaded there. I truly believe because she was empowered, because she'd had the conversation, mm-hmm. it helped her survive that situation. I think I was on a plane like at 5.30 in the morning, flew out there, drove straight to her apartment and uh, saw her at the door. And when I gave her that hug, that's the first time she cried, but she cried, but I knew she was okay, physically. You prepared her for this. It's sad that we have to do that, but I've prepared my daughter. My daughter's a freshman in high school and I tell her to make sure you know where your exits are, listen to your teachers, listen to what is happening. As a survivor, I just, I want her to feel empowered, you know, to be able to know that she can get out of this situation safely. Absolutely. 
I don't like to tell her the world's a scary place, but it, it really is sometimes. It's a scary place if we allow it to be. But if we prepare and if we think things through and if we empower, like you've empowered your daughter, you have those conversations and you prepare them, the chances of it being real scary are minimized and chances of survival go up. It's a very crude analogy and I don't want to lessen this at all, but one of the scariest things we ever do is, is to teach our kids how to drive. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing that right now, by the way. <laughs> you know, we lose total control of them. We make sure they put their seatbelt on. We make sure they adjust their mirrors. We make sure that they drive their speed limit. We try to tell them don't text. We give them the best advice we can. We do that over and over and over with them. Having the conversations about active shooters or predators in the world is along those same lines. I think the ramifications are different. However, more people get killed in traffic accidents than are ever hurt by an active shooter. Mm -hmm. But we're not afraid to have the conversation when it comes to the operating a vehicle. We shouldn't be, as adults, afraid to have the conversations with our kids, age appropriate, mm -hmm. to say this is the world. And the world's unpredictable. And so we can either put our head in the sand and say, eh, not me which was April 20th, 1999, right before the event happened. As a, as a SWAT operator, I thought, I'm never gonna experience that stuff, right? Or we can learn from these things and we can get out there and not take no for an answer and we can teach and we can try to do it better. I haven't gone through it on the other end. I don't want anyone to ever have to go through this as a father. No. I'm thinking about all the death and damage you've seen. How do you keep going without it getting to you? For me, it's a perpetual process. These things can stay with us. And if we don't do something about them, it can have a very adverse effect. And so I am a very strong proponent of mental health. And I would say much more than you think, especially at our agency, um, mental health and mental health assistance is normalized to where it's expected. And we allow that for their families as well. I'm not afraid to put body armor on to go out and handle a call. I shouldn't be afraid to sit down and talk about some of the things that might be in my head or in my heart to make sure that I am, am healthy. You know, these officers risk their lives for people that they don't know, and sometimes people that don't like them. It's one of, if not the most honorable profession on the face of the earth. Mm. We have to honor that and make sure that we can keep them whole when they go through this. Yeah. Which is hard for officers. Picture an average officer you know, no one ever calls a cop to come to their house because they're having a good day. No one says, hey, could you stop by, right? Well, unless you accidentally call them on your cell phone on accident. <laughs> right. And they came to my house last summer and I was like, everything's fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, but people, yeah, people call the cops on crisis. So they go from one crisis to the next crisis to the next crisis to the next crisis. There's still times that things will trigger me, you know, and you just have a bad day or a bad week and... Mm -hmm. You know, resiliency, you decide, hey, okay, I'm gonna push through this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get better. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna let that dark side win. No, I fight every day for my mental health. It's something that I've worked on for 21 years and I'll continue to, to fight. You have to for you, you have to for your kids, you have to for the victims. You've got to go on and live a productive life that they weren't allowed to live. Their lives were cut short. We've been blessed to continue to move forward and we have to be as productive as we can be and we need to be able to live that life to its fullest in honor of those that we lost. Yes. To fall short of that, it's just not acceptable. It's been such an honor meeting with you. 
I'm like seriously geeking out. I like do do ride alongs. Well, back in the day I did. Yeah. Oh man. That would be so fun if we got to cruise around in your car. Right. All I do now is sit behind this desk. Unfortunately, uh, it's been the hardest thing is of promoting up and, and being deputy chief. I hear those hot calls go out. First thing I want to do is run out there and it's like, okay, I can't, <laughs> but I could get you in the, in the car with a couple of cops that show you a good time. Yeah. I might have to take you up on that. That would be really cool. If you were to spend the day here with me in this office, you'd go, oh my God, this is boring. Poor guy. Well, I would probably bug the shit out of you. So <laughs> That's all right. And you're always welcome. You are always welcome if you come up this way. Thank you. Well, thank you. On the next episode of Confronting Columbine. Nobody should normalize that. That's not normal. Running for your life, that's not normal. Because people would be like, well, you went through something very difficult, but boy, oh boy, you came out of it like a champ. For more information on The Rebels Project or to donate, please go to therebelsproject.org and see me there. Want to know more about the Confronting Podcast? Please follow us at Confronting Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for photos, additional content, and discussions about the podcast. We are all confronting something, and I look forward to continuing the discussion from our episodes over social media with all of you. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for going on this journey with me. Confronting Columbine was produced and hosted by me, Amy Over. Executive produced by Nancy Glass, Andrea Gunning, Ben Fetterman, and Carrie Hartman. Produced by Julie Clark. Associate producer, Trey Morgan. Editing by senior audio editor, Matt Dovecchio. Editor, Drew Wallace and Dean Welsh. With production assistance from Megan Paisley and Brianna Fars. Other members of the production team include Kristen Melchiori, Pete Ward, and Natalie Thomas. Music and original composition by Mibe Music. Confronting Columbine was produced by Glass Entertainment Group, Glass Podcast in partnership with Wondery. Imagine falling in love with the perfect partner. Charming, caring, handsome, successful, and utterly captivating. But what if that love was nothing more than an elaborate con orchestrated by your alleged best friend? Sometimes the perfect match can be a dangerous game. I'm Tiffany Reese, host of Something Was Wrong. Join me for season 20 as we unravel the chilling story of a group of friends ensnared in one of the most elaborate catfishing schemes of all time. Meet the survivors who thought they found love, friendship, and trust but instead found themselves entangled in a web of lies, all spun by one person. Uncover the chilling truth behind Brody, a fictitious persona meticulously crafted to deceive and control women for over a decade. Follow Something Was Wrong on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Something Was Wrong early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.